having complex PTSD is a lot like being the Incredible Hulk. When you're triggered, you can go into this state where you're not thinking straight. You can get kind of violent and scary. Um, but also remember that the Hulk is not a villain. Complex PTSD isn't all terrible. There are terrible things about it. But there is another shadow side to it. Or a bright side mm -hmm. to the shadow side that does make you sort of a very empathetic, very courageous individual. I think the real trick is to learn how to calm down your Hulk when you don't need him and say like, okay, Hulk, not today. Right now, it's everything is fine. And how to use him when it's actually relevant. People with complex PTSD can be truly the most powerful, empathetic healers um, once they have embarked on that journey. Hi, welcome to It's All in Your Head podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Colbeth, and it's great to be with you. Today, we are going to talk about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as CPTSD, with Stephanie Fu. Stephanie developed CPTSD after years of abuse she received that began during childhood. She wrote a New York Times bestseller about her experience titled, what My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. Her account is brave, informative, and extremely hopeful. Stephanie is an inspiration to so many, and we are so glad she took time out of her busy schedule to chat with us. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to It's All in Your Head. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. We're super excited to talk to you. So complex PTSD is something relatively new in med circle here. We know a lot about, um, or we know that a lot of different diagnoses still have a way to go for understanding. So I was hoping for the audience sake and just, you know, education wise, uh, it'd be super helpful if you could just describe the difference between CPTSD and PTSD. Sure. So you can get traditional PTSD from a single traumatic event. Okay. So let's say you were in a car accident, you could get PTSD from that. Okay. CPTSD is kind of like if you were in that car accident every week for years and years. Um, it's when the trauma is recurring very often. Um, and unless you're a very, very unlucky person, um, that probably means that you were in a relationship with or, you know, betrayed by somebody who was supposed to love and take care of you. My complex PTSD comes from child abuse. It can also come from being in an abusive relationship, living in a war zone, that kind of thing. And I think it's super, super helpful um, because just to give the audience context, it is really just knowing all the different types of abuse or trauma that can, you know, contribute to that. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, appreciate you making that distinction. I think it's really important. So full disclosure, I've read the book, but for those who haven't read it, I don't want to give anything away because I highly suggest you go read this and you'll devour it like I did. You have endured 
physical abuse. And you had mentioned that probably around the age of 12. And we, uh, myself with the bipolar two disorder, that was the age where I started to feel like something was, you know, a bit different. And you'd mentioned that you struggled with depression and anxiety around that time. Was there any sort of treatment sought at that time? Or was it just, you know, sort of, okay, I'm not really going to share this with anyone and we're not going to um, seek any sort of help? No, definitely not. I didn't have a safe place to um, be imperfect, I guess, because I was in such a traumatic home. Um, I didn't feel safe ever admitting that I was feeling depressed or anxious. Everything always had to be okay and good. And I had to be happy in order to sort of manage my uh, parents' more uh, scattered emotions. Sure. No, now navigating that is uh, definitely quite difficult. And knowing this and in, in knowing, uh, again, what your, uh, your story is, which is amazing. You talk a lot about, and I know a ton of people can relate to this, including myself, is you're feeling these emotions. You're not really understanding them, but damn it, I'm going to go be the best student. I'm going to get a scholarship. I am going to achieve my dream job by, by setting out and getting it and really exceeding standards of what, you know, our society really ingrains in us, um, what makes you okay and Mm -hmm. makes you normal if you're doing all of these things. And if you could share with the audience a little bit about what your experience was like with the CPTSD manifesting itself in your work and career, our audience totally gets what it's like to be working full time, you know, working to achieve their dreams and working hard, but at the same time showing up and and having panic attacks and, and just some really tough experiences. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how that manifested itself um, at work. Yeah, well, growing up, um, I had to be, again, perfect in my life. My, I had to get straight A's. Uh, I had to get perfect report cards. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, perfection equaled safety, um, yep. which wasn't that easy in a workplace or in life in general, right, right. especially not like being at like the top of my field working at This American Life. I couldn't be perfect. I wasn't. Right. Um, and often I made lots of mistakes and I wasn't very good at all. Um, and, you know, as a child, I was beaten for being imperfect. And as an adult, I just beat myself up. I still felt that terror every time I messed up that something horrible was going to happen. Even if I logically knew that it was going to be okay, I was like, I'm going to get fired. My boss is going to scream at me. And it just made my whole life kind of in my work environment really, really terrifying. And I bet that had to just, you know, in hindsight, exacerbate the CPTSD, because certainly knowing I worked full-time in media, so I can relate to just the onslaught of things coming at you, be it clients, coworkers, um, editors, just all sorts of different people, personalities, um, 
And I know sometimes that's hard to navigate because we spend the overwhelming majority of time, most of us, um, at work amongst our peers. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that you had done that I admire so much and I just think was one of the boldest, bravest moves I've heard about is you had gotten to a point, you'd, you'd achieved this successful career and you said, my health needs to be focused on full-time at this point. And you left the comfort of all the achievements, the job, the identity, and you prioritized your mental health. And that experience, I know a lot of people are super terrified to, to do and take that step. Can you share a little bit about what that was like when you made the bold decision that we all feel like we're going to get stigmatized for, which is, you know, I really need to focus on this. It's gone untreated. It's gone either unidentified and I'm going to prioritize this and who the hell cares what it looks like. I was always afraid I'd never be employed again. Mm-hmm. was my fear, right? If I left, if I left a job that I wasn't happy with, what was it like? Was it liberating? Was it terrifying to make the decision to say my health comes first? It was terrifying. Of course it was. It was definitely the bravest thing I've ever had to do. Yeah. And it was the, it was really sad. This was the job that I had worked for my whole life. This is again, my dream job. I, wanted to work at this American life so badly. And, you know, it came with a lot of power. It came with a lot of cultural cachet. And it was really hard to let go of that, the paycheck, the health insurance, the power. But I really credit my partner for being super grounding at the time. Um, He was a teacher and he was just very much like, this does not define you. I don't love you for this. Your friends, your true friends don't love you for this career. And what is so horrible about being normal um, about even if you never work in media again, is it so terrible right. to go and be normal and just get right. a normal job somewhere else? Yep. And uh, I was like, no, that, that's not so bad. No. <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, maybe I won't work in media again. Maybe I'll just become a, maybe I'll become a librarian. Maybe I'll become a researcher. Who knows? Um, So that was okay. And, you know, part of it was a choice, definitely. Mm -hmm. Part of it also wasn't a choice. Part of it was like, you know, it was, it got to the point where it was on Sundays, sort of freaking out all day Sunday about going into work on Monday, that like having panic attacks all day at work. It just wasn't tenable anymore. Right. Right. Um, And so I also just wanted to be a better person. I didn't want to be the same person I had been this whole time. I didn't want to be stressing out. And I thought maybe there's a chance I could come back better, stronger, more capable of doing this and being happy at the same time. You came back as a New York Times bestseller. I think that's <laughs> I think that's a pretty awesome return and awesome yeah. achievement. Um, what did that feel like? 
I mean, that is such an honor. And for those of us who've <laughs> been in journalism and who've been around it and who love to write, that is surely a dream and a goal of many. What was that like to know your memoir hit the New York Times bestseller? You know, it was never a dream and a goal of mine. Okay. Because I didn't just, I just never expected that to happen. I was always that's awesome. Kind of like, well, that would be great, but there's no way, you know. Right. So I got the call right before I was going out to dinner with a couple of friends, going to like this crazy sold out event that I had organized, and my publicist called me and she told me, and I was like, what? <laughs> and I just started crying. It was Aww. definitely wild. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. Yeah. I just, I wrote this book with the intent of helping one person truly. So the, the fact that it's done more than that is I'm eternally grateful, really. Oh, you're going to make me tear up. I remember saying something similar, you know, if, the, if this podcast and a conversation with someone makes one person feel good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good mission mission accomplished. Speaking of friends, loved ones, there's a part in the book that's very powerful about when you got to speak with another person who was diagnosed with, with this. And her, you refer to her as Lacey in the book. And it felt like such a powerful moment when you first met your, met someone else with lived experience, you know, having seen therapists and doctors and all these kind of, you know, laboratory types. And then you meet your first, the first person with lived experience. And how powerful was that for you? I mean, Lacey was and is a, a badass journalist, is a really successful, smart, powerful yeah. woman. So to know that there was somebody else out there who had complex PTSD, but was out there killing the game, yep. you know, wasn't letting her complex PTSD define her and wasn't, um, that she wasn't suffering from it constantly right. was really hope inducing. Um, and she told me like, it's hard work. I had to really put in the work yep. to get to this place, but you can do it. And so that's when I really got my butt into gear. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is something, there is something really bonding and special about that. I quit drinking decades ago and I had entered treatment at the time and I'll never forget listening to someone describe their alcoholism in me being like, but you're employed you have a family. I even saw you laughing over there. Like I thought that just didn't occur. You know, it was all, I was kind of gobsmacked that, you know, someone else could have this thing that was just dark and destructive. And, you know, my life's kind of just dunzy. And they, um, they had this beautiful thing going on. And in that part where you speak about Lacey, I, I just personally love that because, um, she was what you had needed to see to get that motivation and that hope. As you got that motivation, you use a term in the book I love, um, which is you're like, all right, now it's time to hack my brain. Like, mm -hmm. let's get into it. Let's see what's what. 
And to your point, this is going to be hard work, but I'm down for the cause. And you go on, like so many of us, the search for therapists and different therapists. And, you know, again, I relate, many, many people relate to this. What would you give as far as advice to anyone who's like, you know, is what's a good kind of suggestion or maybe a bar or something people can gauge to know, hey, you know, this one might be a little more, you know, effective, at least with me, um, than another person? Um, I just want to encourage people to remember that you are hiring the therapist, that they are working for you to help you. And if they are not helping you and they're not doing what you want, you don't have to see them. And that they might have the degree, they might have the knowledge of how brains work. They don't know your brain better than you. Um, And if they're making you feel unsafe or scared or what they're doing is just not working for you, you can always tell them and ask Mm -hmm. them for something different. If they're not willing to provide that something different, then you can always see somebody else. Um, And I think particularly with people with complex PTSD, it's really important to see someone who is comfortable giving up their own power and Mm -hmm. giving you power, empowering you in the session to make decisions, to ask for things, to be confident in the session um, and, you know, to constantly be asking what you need and affirming what you need. Therapy isn't just a thing that happens to you. It's a thing that you make happen and you get to control. You're an active part of it. Yes. And I love that theme of agency. And so many times when you are either diagnosed, misdiagnosed, like so many of us are all over the place, it is sort of this, well, I'll take what I can get. They are from Harvard and that's Mm -hmm. where their degree's from. So obviously like I'm going to feel like a simpleton and sort of, you know, less than or inferior versus sort of a partnership of like you're usher, you're supposed to be ushering me into, you know, getting healthier and informing better habits. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people really genuinely, and I certainly didn't for many years, I didn't feel that way. I felt like I just kind of had to sit there and they were the best people I could Mm -hmm. get. Part of that agency that you displayed involved what I thought was just an awesome, voracious hunger for knowledge on what is going on with me, and I'm so motivated to get better. I want to understand this, and I want to use all of my, you know, really journalistic skills that you've honed all these years, and we're going to go on a journey, and we're going to talk to doctors. We're going to go back to my hometown. We're going to really, really, really try to understand this, and throughout your travels, throughout your experience, were there any therapies that really worked for you in particular? I think that a lot of therapies worked a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really important thing to remember too, is there is no silver bullet when it comes to CPTSD. And often you need a cocktail of things. Mm-hmm. Um, one therapy most of the time is not going to cut it um, because there's a lot of different aspects of complex PTSD that need healing. Like there's the somatic aspect. When you are triggered, you sort of need your body to calm down in order for your brain to get calm enough for you to think critically at all about what's really happening. So for me, um, restorative yoga was really helpful for that learning some basic meditation stuff, breathing, all really helpful for that. Um, Also, there's the intellectual side. There's talk therapy. That was really, so some CBT, some talk therapy was really helpful, but also EMDR was really helpful in terms of really getting, not just knowing that I was traumatized, what my parents did, but fully understanding it, reckoning with it, sort of speaking to the inner child, IFS was really ultimately helpful in sort of recognizing my inner child, recognizing my hidden superpowers. Uh, Relational therapy was super, super critical in terms of allowing me to understand um, how to interact with people, like retrain me how to love and be loved by other people, essentially, Um, which manifested for me as like Google Docs therapy, which is a sort of unique experience. Um, but I don't think that, um, I would have gotten to feel as whole as I do now without that combination of a little bit of everything. Yep. Yeah. I, I agree. It's a multifaceted maintaining mental health, whatever you're diagnosed with. It's definitely a multi, uh, faceted sort of consistent, um, type of, uh, campaign really. Mm -hmm. And something you, you had mentioned, which I think a lot of us, this is like the hardest thing to come to terms with is I want to stop hurting people in Mm -hmm. my life. And to your point a minute ago, relationships and relational therapy can be extremely helpful for those with CPTSD. Um, It was extremely helpful for me um, myself to go through that and say, you know what, even if I'm not intending to hurt people, which I'm not, I'm the common denominator at the very end of the day, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And that's kind of a tough pill to swallow because I think a lot of people will then, you know, kind of beat themselves up, but really busting the myth of, I'm doing you a favor by, you know, keeping you like at an arm's length or I'm doing you a favor um, for I'm going to eventually hurt you. So, you know, it's kind of one of these things where I don't know where this this will go. This will last for those of us where that's kind of that's sort of the mix now. I think it's it's hopeful and cool to hear about your experience with who you call Joey in the book, but just reading about him um, and what it's like to meet another person who really you don't have to feel threatened. The walls, you know, go shooting up. You feel very accepted and in a loving, supportive environment. Was that uncomfortable at first, 
he seemed so emotionally, you know, available. And I know for myself, I was like, wow, this guy's a gem as I'm reading it. And I thought, I don't know, maybe I would have gotten a little scared. I mean, he's not perfect. You know, <laughs> he's, he's a nuanced individual. Of course, of course. Of us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely it took some getting used to, um, being with someone who was, uh, more securely attached tendencies. Um, you know, I, I remember one Christmas, um, I was asking him if he wanted to do something on Christmas Eve and he was like, Oh no, of course I need to spend it with my family. And I thought, Oh, that means he's going to be doing Christmas Eve with them, whatever. It's fine. And then, but I was a little pouty about it because I thought that we had sort of agreed previously that we were going to spend Christmas Eve together. And then he was like, well, obviously you're coming. Like you're, you're going to be there with my family. Duh. You know? So, uh, it was definitely something to get used to. I didn't want to move in with him at first. He really did want to move in very quickly. I was like, this is psycho. Um, you're a crazy person, but uh, I, <laughs> I followed his lead on a lot of things Aww. and he has turned out to be right on a lot of things. Oh, well, that's awesome. I'm I'm glad you found that special person because I know how awesome it can be to to have them in your life. So thanks for sharing a little bit about him. Although he is not perfect. We are noting. <laughs> we are noting. <laughs> Another thing that you dive into, Stephanie, in the book, which I definitely wanted to cover for this conversation because I found it um, well, really impressive, but also super, super, super important. Um, maybe now more than ever, but what you describe is immigrant trauma and what that is like for communities who suffer that. Because as you read about it, obviously, you know, it's horrific um, for certain communities, but for those, um, my grandparents were immigrants from Italy. Um, They weren't treated kindly at all when they came to this country, either by, you know, the people here or the mafia who actually would target, you know, their own. Um, so they had their, um, adversities. So for those of us who don't have that awareness and a lot of us don't at this point, this age or younger, can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about that topic? Yeah, I think that it's really important to try and understand a little bit of our ancestral trauma if we can um, because our trauma is passed down culturally of course mm-hmm. um, you know my parents uh, went through some traumatic things and they probably just really did not know how to parent me and yep. then messed up pretty badly. Um, but also there is like an epigenetic element to it. Um, there is evidence that the trauma that we undergo actually affects our epigenome and that we can pass on our trauma to our children. So the fact that my great grandmother, my grandmother survived so many wars, conflicts were, you know, really struggling to survive and feed their families and not get 
you know, assaulted by Japanese soldiers, that has a possible impact on my genome and the way that I process trauma and scary things. Um, And so, yeah, the fact that I hustle so hard at work, it might be because of my parents, it might be because of capitalism, it might be because this is how my parent, my great grandparents literally survived. So that's all really important. And then, yeah, there are definitely racial elements to complex PTSD. Complex PTSD can probably occur from experiencing repeated instances of racism. If you're made to feel unsafe all the time because of your race, your gender identity, um, if you're very, very, very poor growing up, you know, um, and so it's really important to understand that trauma isn't just you, isn't just from your parents. It really comes from society at large, from history, from global wars and yeah. and immigration and all of that. And, yeah. you know, it's a big task to tell yourself that you're going to heal all of that. And so you probably can't, there's some, got to be some level of acceptance of that. Yes. Genetics are powerful things and things that, you know, get passed down. I remember when I was first looking through my family's genealogy and reading diaries, things we found, and, you know, all these people, and obviously I struggled with depression, but all these people were, were dying of exhaustion. Mm. That's what they used to put on there for like a full blown kind of like, you know, nervous breakdown, I think is what, you know, would be more accurate today, but this was way back when, and we had records. And I remember thinking they died of exhaustion. You know, that is just, man, you don't know really anything as far as a diagnosis, you know, um, different things like that. But I, I, I think it's important to highlight that because I think a lot of people assume if they're struggling with their mental health, it's taking place in some vacuum, like, you know, their, their parents and their parents, parents and their parents, 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 you know, like to your point, things they experienced aren't going to be passed down. Um, I think that's actually pretty relieving, or it was to me, at least, to learn that, you know what, this didn't come out of nowhere. There is a lineage that I can trace. And it's, you know, I'm looking at it. Mm -hmm. And um, there's almost a sense, I think, of, at least for me, relief in a a weird way, knowing. Right. You know, I didn't ask for it, but... You've, you have some responsibility over that, but it's not your fault. Yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I also like to, you know, I'm big on realistic expectations, right? Like I don't want anyone blowing sunshine up my new year, you know, my new year, my, you know what, um, <laughs> you know, being in, you're from the East Coast too, you know, I'm big on, don't lead me down a primrose path. Give it to me straight. Don't tell me I'm going to take this pill and everything's going to be fine. Um, I've come to find in my 40 some odd years here that I think a lot of strife with mental health comes with really dumb, unrealistic expectations. You know, people walking out of sessions like, you know, okay, you know, I'm not feeling less anxiety yet. I'm not. And I think it's super important, you know, to to highlight that, 
you know, the first time someone sat me down and said, look, you got this for life. There's no pill that can cure it, but there's a whole lot we can do to make your life fulfilling. You can be content, um, but, but do know in a realistic way, you're just going to have to do more maintenance maybe than the average person was how it was described to me. But man, just knowing that, you know, okay, yeah, maybe I don't, I'm not going to, you know, get cured, but I can at least, uh, live with this and laugh and, and, you know, have a family and meet wonderful people. But I think a lot of times expectations are so whack. Um, that's almost, you know, half the problem. You know, nobody is perfect. And I don't know if you're comparing yourself to this perfectly sane, idealized person that that person just doesn't exist. Everyone's got their own neuroses. Everyone's got their own problems. Even like their richest, most privileged people definitely have dysfunction going up the chain. Maybe more, maybe more. And so, you know, I think for a long time, I thought CPTSD made me really freakish, made me really different. And like, certainly I, there are things that are exaggerated in the way that I feel. Um, But I don't think that any of these feelings that I have are totally foreign. I mean, most of them are human emotions. Absolutely. Sometimes exaggerated human emotions, but they are just regular human emotions. My responses to things are like healthy human responses to threat. Um, Maybe, maybe I may sense threat too often, but normal responses to threat. So it's, it's important to keep those things in mind. Yep. No, that's, that's definitely great advice because I remember always thinking, you know, what do you mean people can't relate to depression? What do you mean people can't relate? Surely you've been sad. Just imagine that on like an everyday sustained basis, you know, and, and that's more what it's like, but man, these all involve emotions. So surely, you know, there, there is a way people can, can step in to your shoes. So you're putting all this work in and you're working really hard. Was there a point or was it just, you know, started to become so ingrained as just a fabric of your routine? Was there any sort of point where obviously, you know, it's never going to be, I'm cured, but was there a point where you're like, I'm doing pretty good right now. Like I've come, if I'm drawing a bar from like maybe where my worst was, like I'm seeing some improvement. Yeah, I think uh, it was sort of, it was sort of like this, Mm -hmm. you know, I definitely during midway points through the, through the healing process, we're like, this is better than it used to be. It's still very painful, but it's better. But definitely after uh, my four months of therapy with Dr. Hum, Mm -hmm. it really was a feeling of, oh, I think I have a grasp on this. And I think I'm not the worst person in the world. Just that feeling was was really great. And at that point, I had sort of had a couple of years, a year and a half at least, of really practicing why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. So 
I think the big difference was a lot of the times I still felt bad, yeah, but I understood why I felt bad. Yeah. And I was like, let me root through the toolbox and see if there's anything that I can do about it in this scenario. Yep. Um, and so of course I still have my, my bad days. I just have better ways of coping with it. Yep. Yeah. I like, I love the word toolkit because you're right. Sometimes you got to get in there and, and take some of them out for those who are struggling with CPTSD or might not even know they're struggling with it. Something we, we like to, to end on with all of our guests is what piece of advice would you give to that person who's watching, who's either, you know, at the hopeless point? Um, what advice would you impart? I would say, uh, I love to sort of talk about the Hulk metaphor that, mm-hmm. Dr. Hom told me, which is that having complex PTSD is a lot like being the Incredible Hulk mm-hmm. in that when you're triggered, you can go into the state where you're not thinking straight. You're a little stupid, actually. Mm-hmm. You speak in like maybe two word sentences. Um, you can get kind of violent and scary. Um, but also remember that the Hulk is not a villain. The Hulk often uses those powers to help his friends to stand up for what is right. And so complex PTSD isn't all terrible. There are terrible things about it, but there is another shadow side to it or a bright side Mm -hmm. to the shadow side that does make you sort of a very empathetic, very courageous individual who has the guts to really stand up for those who are being oppressed, who are, who are suffering. Um, and that, and so I think the real trick is to learn how to calm down your Hulk when you don't need him and say like, okay, Hulk, not today, right now it's everything is fine and how to use him when it's actually relevant and I think once you're able to sort of harness the Hulk, your life gets so much better and people with complex PTSD can be truly the most powerful, empathetic healers um, once they have embarked on that journey. Um, it's a hard journey, <laughs> sure. but it's worth it. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and speaking with us. This has been so informative and and fun to chat with you about it. And I know you're going to help way more than one person um, today with this, but just want to thank you again for your honesty, your bravery. And um, again, congratulations on the book. It's uh, amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you all for joining today's conversation with Stephanie. If you visit medcircle.com, you can access tons of other conversations, including weekly workshops with our credentialed doctors, an award-winning video library featuring almost 1,000 educational videos. Become a member of our community today. Visit medcircle.com to learn more. And thanks for listening to It's All in Your Head.